your daily dose of all things Gamecocks on the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. Here's J.C. Sherbert. Happy Monday, everyone. It's the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. J.C. Sherbert here with you. Glad to be talking Gamecocks today uh, on a spring day, the week of the spring football game at South Carolina, and a relatively large baseball series coming up this weekend. So this is going to be a pretty good weekend to talk about and preview and dig into as we move forward. Um, Really, uh, I made some notes before the show. The spring game is always a good day. Uh, I I don't know that I've ever come out of a spring game. Maybe the one where Chris Smelly threw all the interceptions and Spurrier named Tommy Beecher the starting quarterback for the 08 year that whole summer. Um, maybe that was one that wasn't, uh, you know, stellar, uh, I guess you walk away from it going, man. Uh, but most of the time the, these spring games are, are good days. I mean, it, it's hard to tell a lot about the team, but, but it's also, you know, a pretty good day to get your eyes on some individuals and, and things like that. Now, as we've all learned over the years, a lot of times the guys that, are really good in the spring game disappear and then, you know, guys come back from injury or whatever. And, you know, so it's hard to get a complete picture, but uh, there's so many new faces and there's so many new schemes and, 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 and coaches and, and stuff like that in the first year of a coaching staff. It's, it's a, it's a snapshot that features a treasure trove of information and sort of, you know, I, I guess directions and, and, and things like that. You know, I, I don't think anybody's going to go to the South Carolina spring game and be like, well, man, you know, these guys are going to win the SEC East. And, and I don't think you should do that at most of them. Uh, but, you know, your Georgias of the world and your Floridas of the world have established players and, and they go to see those players. And, you know, you may come away with it like that. I, I do think that uh, one thing I'm looking forward to seeing is the, the battles along the lines of scrimmage. Uh, I think South Carolina is in good shape on both lines. Uh, and then, you know, the problem areas we've talked about, the, the secondary and the linebackers and the wide receivers. Uh, and then, you know, of course, quarterbacks, all, all eyes are going to be on those guys to see how they can throw the football. Uh, I will so tell you that if Luke Doty goes out there and struggles throwing it and one of the other guys lights it up, I, I don't think it, it's quite fair to sit there and start, you know, carrying the torch for another quarterback before it ever gets started. Um, I think that would be bad. Would be bad, okay? South Park, Mr. Mackey. Uh, because there's a reason he's ahead and a spring scrimmage won't change that. I, I think it would help the other guys. But but I, I don't think, you know, and I've talked about sort of the, the toxicity uh, around quarterbacks in, in general in college football from fan bases. I think, you know, it used to be, and this would get on my nerves too, it used to be that, everybody just blamed the coaches no matter what. Like the coaches were out there playing and, and you know, ne- you know, it was kind of off limits to ever blame players for anything. Uh, everybody had their players they wish weren't playing, but then they blame that on the coaches too. You know, shoot, it's not their fault. They put so much, it's the coach's fault for putting them out there or whatever. I think Steve Spurrier actually said that one time. Uh, but uh, now a quarterback I, I think has become, you know, a, a hot spot in terms of these guys just can't do anything right unless they're perfect. And I think at South Carolina specifically, a lot of it has to do with what's going on up the road. 
and the quarterback play they've had, which has been outstanding now for five, six years. I mean, you know, you get Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence back-to-back, throw in a year where Kelly Bryant was pretty good, and, uh, you know, quarterback play in the upstate's been really good. And I know that most people sit there and watch that every weekend. And and so you get in your mind, well, this is how it's supposed to be done all the time. And if somebody's not up to that standard, which that standard's ridiculously high, uh, then they get bashed a little bit. And that's not fair either, but I understand it and I understand why the deal is. But I'm I'm looking forward to seeing the quarterbacks, definitely. Um, sort of an underrated, I guess, aspect or, or storyline that we haven't really talked about. And it's the spring, so we need to talk about it. Because uh, that's when you kind of talk about this type of stuff um, is the depth at running back. Uh, I, I think that with all the focus on Kevin Harris and Marshawn Lloyd, rightfully so, you forget there's two other guys there, and and you may need them. You, you just never know. I mean, certainly a catastrophic season-ending injury to Kevin Harris or Marshawn Lloyd would be bad uh, for the uh, for the team because those are two of the best players on the team talent-wise uh, at a key position that can you know, score touchdowns and, and move the chains. But uh, I, I think that sometimes you go through a season and, and a guy has a, you know, turns an ankle slightly and has to sit for a game or, you know, something like that, or they have to be out a couple of weeks. You need other guys because you can't just have one. I think you can get by with two. It's helpful to have three or four, though. Uh, and so as I've been reading and following up with sources and things like that, uh, I want to give credit to Zaquandre White, who also has been a standout on special teams this year because he's really playing well at running back. And, you know, last year, once he got there, even before they knew really how good Kevin Harris could be, you know, the, the idea was, well, you know, we need to get Zaquandre White up to speed so he can be the player that we think he can be. And it just never happened. He never got in a rhythm in the games. Uh, he turned the ball over, uh, you know, had some issues going backward instead of running forward, things like that, that a lot of times running backs when they're trying really hard, but they're kind of thrown into a, a new situation. You know, th- those things happen. I saw them happen with some really good running backs over the years. Um, and then they kind of straighten themselves out and get better. And so he's gotten better this uh this offseason is going to be a big part of the team. You know, now how many carries that equals to behind the other guys, I don't know. But uh, he's playing really well. And, and then Rashad Amos, who's 6'2", 215 pounds, uh, has also done pretty well. So, uh, you know, I, I think that in a situation like that, first and foremost, don't ever, you don't ever, you don't want to lose Harris and Lloyd because those guys can. Uh, Harris is an 1,100-yard rusher returning in the SEC. Lloyd is a five-star player that's, you know, every bit is special. Uh, So you don't want to lose those guys. But but I I think, you know, just for a spell, hit or miss, you know, a a spell here, a spell there, you know, maybe you give one a series a game. I I think White and Amos um, have taken some steps forward. And and that's not going to get talked about a lot. Uh, with Harris and Lloyd there. And Lloyd, of course, isn't going through spring. So this has been good for White and Amos because they've been getting a lot of carries. Because uh, I don't think you, you give a bunch of carries to Kevin Harris uh, right now. I mean, I think you, know, you don't want to get him hurt. Uh, and so those two have been getting the bulks of the carries. And, and, and I think that 
you know, you talk to Ontario Hardesty uh, about these guys, and, and he seems impressed. And there was a lot of a lot of pretty good player comparisons. Well, I don't have the article in front of me, but uh, you know, you look at uh, look at the player comparisons he gave out. They're pretty stellar players, uh, and I think look, he's uh, he's just talking about style of play. I mean. Uh, and I, I hate – I've been on record saying I hate player comparisons. and But I, I'll pass them along when somebody else gives them to me. And if I see one where, look, my audience and my readers are not going to really understand unless I break it down to say, okay, he's like this guy, I try to avoid it. I avoided it much more when I was doing national recruiting than, you know, now. Because, uh, you know, when you look at all those players across the country – you really come to learn that every player is different. Now there's players that are similar, but different, you know, Terrell Pryor, for example, uh, you watched him in high school and you're like, he could be Vince young and look, six, five can throw decently, not great, but neither could Vince uh, until he got junior, senior year, uh, great runner, you know, that type of quarterback. And, 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 you know, so you looked at Terrell Pryor and you're like, well, he could be Vince Young. But when you watch them closely and you saw them in person and all that, you, you, you notice Terrell Pryor is a little bit different, you know, a lot different, really. And how their careers turned out in college, it, it was a lot different with Terrell versus Vince. So th- that's just something to kind of look at right there. Uh, as far as player comparisons and all that. But, uh, you know, I thought Hardesty was very complimentary of these guys. And, you know, just from what I've heard consistently about White Namos, I figured it'd be good to mention them because, uh, you know, like I said, you don't want anything to happen to Harrison Lloyd. That would be bad. But I, I think that what you want from your depth at running back is, okay, can we survive if we have these guys in? You know, if somebody's got to go down or rest or whatever, and and I think that's uh, that's a positive thing. I mean, we can all remember in 2011 when you know not only did Marcus Lattimore get hurt, you know there were some Kenny Miles was hurt. Uh, I think Mike Davis is a fre- was Mike Davis a freshman that year? No, Mike Davis is a freshman in 2012. Kenny Miles got hurt. Somebody else got hurt. And so they were down to like Brandon Wilds at running back. Um, and then I think Miles came back uh, in 2011 uh, toward the end. But, you know, after Lattimore went, I mean, you know, who's this freshman from Blythewood? Well, it's Brandon Wilds. And, and he did really well. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think at the heading into the season, he was the fourth team guy. Uh, and so there's times where, where you're going to need that player. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it kind of evolves and, and things like that. Hopefully that didn't happen to this team this year. You know, hopefully Kevin Harris and, and Marshawn Lloyd are, are ready to roll and outside of your normal nicks and bruises. But if you think about it, running backs against this schedule in this league, you know, they take a beating. And so, you know, it used to be that you could give a guy – and I think with Marcus in, in 2010 – you know, because Marcus's injuries really, in my opinion, didn't have anything to do with, you know, running him so much. Like some people you know, in the national media wanted you to believe that. But I don't think if you look at the place he actually got hurt, they were freak plays and he just got twisted up in a pile. And then against Tennessee, uh, we know what happened the next year on the other knee. Uh, it's unfortunate. It's the most one of the most heartbreaking things, I think, 
that's happened in the history of Carolina football. And there's been a lot of heartbreak. Um, but I think, you know, you, you saw it that year. Marcus would get 30, 35 carries sometimes, 40 against Florida. I, I don't think that's – I think those days are probably gone uh, in college football. And, and it really hadn't happened at Carolina since. Uh, even Kevin Harris last year, you know, they didn't give it to him 30, 40 times. You know, they, they were – Fenwick would get his carries. You know, they'd rotate guys. Toward the end, Amos was getting carries. Uh, so, you know, when you look at it that way, I think that there's definitely a case for two at all times, uh, and then sometimes a case for three. Uh, and I'm, I try to think back to some teams that have had good running back duos, uh, not named Alabama because they usually have three or four. But, you know, like 2017 Georgia that I brought up the other day uh, because there was a prediction that, Lloyd and Harris would both go over a thousand yards. And I said, well, if that happens, South Carolina is going to probably win a lot of games this year. Um, but Georgia had 2000 yard rushers. Now they played 15 games because they went to the national championship in 2017, uh, 2000 yarders. And then Swift had 600. I think another guy had three, you know, so they, you know, they're the modern day, I guess, example of when you're loaded at running back, how to run the football. Uh, that team, that Georgia team that year. And Georgia always does that. But, you know, so if you're looking for something like that, you know, you, you probably do need a DeAndre Swift to kind of play the third guy or whatever in case one goes out. And, you know, lots of things can happen. Like I said, you, you can have – you can sprain your toe and have to sit a week. I mean, that position is just, you know, you take a beating. You're getting hit over and over. And so um, I thought that the backup running backs were worth a discussion here today, Monday before the spring game. And I also think they're going to get a lot of the carries this weekend. Uh, so if you're watching at home or you're at the game, White and Amos are going to carry the ball quite a bit. You know, because like I said, I think you know you, you try Kevin Harris out there, you let him run it a couple times, and you're like, uh, have a good day, buddy. You know, you just because you just don't want to get him hurt. Um, but the other two, I think, will get a lot of carries, a lot of action this weekend. You kind of get to see the improvement uh, that everybody's talked about, and um, and I'm happy for both these guys. You know, I'm happy for White uh, because he's was the number one JUCO running back in the country. Probably did not have the year he wanted to last year from scrimmage. Even was at safety for a spell last year, but I mean the guy has never given up. He's a great team player. He had every reason maybe to go transfer again. He didn't. Stuck with it. Uh, they talk about energy and, and a guy, he's kind of a heart and soul guy, you know, a guy that can kind of get people fired up. And then Amos, you know, here's a kid that flipped from Western Kentucky late in the process. Thomas Brown found him and uh, he's a guy that's delivered. I mean, you look at last year when he got the opportunity to carry the ball, it looked pretty good. And, you know, taking a step forward, and I love his size. I, I think, you know, you're talking 6'2", 215, 218 right now. That's a big running back. That's a big, tall, long-striding guy. Uh, and so uh, – and I think that's good because, you know, you look at the kid and you're like, well, you flipped him from Western Kentucky. Maybe expectations aren't extremely high uh, for him. But now I think, you know, you look down the road or, or whenever, Amos can be a formidable back at South Carolina based on how he's trending now. Now, things happen sometimes. Guys are heading in one direction and they go in another, and, and we know that. But uh, for right now, you know, you look down the road – and um, and that's that. So I've talked for about 
you know, 15 minutes on the backup running back. So let's get on to something else. Uh, a little uh, personal note here for the Inside the Gamecocks podcast-wise. Um, according to Feedspot, and I've got the link up on our Twitter at the Big Spur Pod, the um, Inside the Gamecocks podcast is ranked as the number one South Carolina Gamecocks podcast uh, in 2021, updated April 14th. You got uh, coming in number two, the Locked on the Gamecocks podcast with Keith. And I was on there. Um, I was on there last weekend because we do reunion Fridays. Uh, and so I guess we did Thursday last weekend. Number three, friends at Gamecock Central, the Gamecock Central Podcast Network. They have a lot of different podcasts there. Fade in with Eric Kimry still hanging there at fourth. Very popular. And, and Eric did such a good job with that. Uh, number five is the Cox by 90 podcast. And number six is the official uh, one episode a month inside Gamecocks athletics. And, and these are good guys. Uh, if you like podcasts, the, the official inside game, they have a lot of good interviews and Ray Tanner, Shane Beamer, whatever. Um, I like these. I like these a lot. The uh, Garnet and Black GABA cast um, I, by the SB Nation site. I know that it used to be a lot more active than it is. Uh, and then something called the Cockpit cod, uh, the Cockpit Podcast, which I've never heard until I saw saw this. But it's a it's a one there uh, at number eight, bringing up the rear at number eight. You know, there's also some other ones out there that I've been on and stuff like that. That uh, you know, you can uh, Tito's and waffles, or no, sorry, Tito's and chicken. Gosh, Tito's and waffles, Tito's and chicken. Is one that I have been on twice that I really enjoy being on. A couple younger guys really get into the Gamecocks and things like that. So shout out to everyone who made the list. Uh, as I've said many, many times, I, I, I think, you know, I feel like, you know, podcasting provides uh, a need for this market, specifically the Gamecocks, that, that is not being met by local radio uh, across the state, particularly outside of Columbia. Uh, and I think our podcast give you guys more content, uh, which is good because you want to hear about the Gamecocks, talk about the Gamecocks, that's your team. Uh, and then I also think that, you know, things like JB and Goldwater, uh, which is which is a local radio, it's a, it's a statewide radio show, but it originates uh, on their own. They're not part of a station or anything like that. And then they get cast out. And, you know, I, I know those numbers have been going up pretty good uh, for the guys there. And, and, and so I, I think it's a whole ecosystem. Uh, whereas, you know, on, in the website world, you, you kind of always want to break news over the other guy and, you know, make your place the cool place compared to theirs. And, you know, even though at the end of the day, they're all cool, you know, <laughs> most people are members of all sites. Uh, and you go from there and, and you know, and it's, it's a little bit more cutthroat than maybe the, you know, the, the audio end of it, because I, I think that there's just such a dramatic need out there for good Gamecock content. And, and then especially right now too, because, you know, you, you look at it and, you know, the, the program right now in football is, is not like it was, you know, six, seven years ago when Spurrier was there and you, people on the national end couldn't get enough of the head ball coach. They were, Carolina was winning game day was coming. I mean, they, that kind of stuff is is stuff that you know it's really missing. I mean, it, right now you it's, if you see an article on the Gamecocks on ESPN.com, it's 
it's a it's a it's a different day, you know, it's a new day. Um, because you just don't get it. And again, you know, the other team, other major power five program in the state, they've been getting a lot of uh, interest. And then the uh the other FBS program in the state, Coastal, got a lot of attention last year. So it's uh it's just one of those things where, hey, where are you gonna get the coverage for the Gamecocks and and, and be inundated by it? And I think podcasting is Definitely one of those things, and I encourage everybody to listen to all of them. Uh, talking to people over the weekend, Shane Beamer made mention of this again about being able to throw the ball down the field, get explosive plays in the passing game. Sounds like that did not go well. Um, and I was told it, it's not, it wasn't, there weren't in dire straits, but it continues to be a concern. Uh, and it also just seemed like, from what I was told, it was just like one thing after another, like, okay, so they get the playoff and uh, the protections breaks down oh well this this one's on the quarterback well this one's on the receiver uh, I also was told the secondary was a pleasant surprise uh Saturday so made some plays broke up some passes turnovers RJ Roderick very active back there they like him so take that for what it's worth but you know I think anything encouraging you can hear on the uh, on the secondary right now is probably pretty good you know, because I, I, to me, that's still by far the biggest area of concern just because you don't have a, a lot of guys that have done it. You know, and, and you can say the same about the receivers. I mean, you look at the production coming back, it's it's paltry. It's paltry. Um, but I think there's enough guys there. And Tony Morrell today mentioned Jalen Brooks as having a good scrimmage Uh along with DeCarry and Joyner, you know, those two come on and you hear this about Joyner more and more, you know, those two start to come on. I mean, I think it's going to take three, two, three to really separate themselves and and be consistent and all that. And I think they'll be fine, but that just hadn't happened on a consistent basis yet. And that's the receiver. Uh, And then the secondary, you just, you're just missing guys and missing depth. Uh, and you play five at a time. So that's that's the concern over there. Of course, they add some people. They may add, you know, somebody else uh, between now and, and, and start of fall camp. But uh, uh, anything good you can hear about the secondary is a positive right now, uh, and I have that uh, going. Um, you know, spring game this weekend, obviously, I think 2 p.m. kickoff Eastern time, SEC Network Plus means you're going to have to stream it like you do the baseball games. That's fine. Um, and then, you know, after that, they, they shut, I think they shut it down during May. Some guys can stay or they can stay if they want, but most guys go back or some guys go on vacation or whatever. And then they come back and, you know, the summer program starts in June. You know, you've got official visits in June. Uh, it's it's going to be one of those things where it, it's a uh, – a activity filled June because uh, June 1st ends the dead period. So guys can start coming back on campus and that's big. I think for South Carolina specifically, because these kids that are this age, they may have taken a visit at some point years ago as underclassmen, uh, the 2022 class. But when when that happens though, you know, you kind of get a wink and a nod or a, a hello from the coach. And, you know, unless you're just a no brainer guy, you know, you're not getting shown the love and personal tours and sit downs with the head coach and things like that. Uh, and so I think that's important. Um, 
for all these guys, you know, and uh, so I think at the end of the day, you know, you want the campus back open as early as possible. Um, one guy that's going to come to the spring game, that's not a visit because he can't talk to the coaches or players and has to buy tickets himself. Dutch Fork four-star receiver Antonio Williams uh, is going to be coming in. Huge priority player for the Gamecocks. Probably the biggest priority at receiver, you know, right there from Dutch Fork. Um, you know, I think Georgia could be a factor there. I'd, I'd still watch out for Ole Miss because of Murph, the Murphy Holloway connection. That Murphy Holloway's his stepdad. Uh, obviously played at Ole Miss, played at Carolina a year on the bench and then went back to Ole Miss. But, uh, you know, Eric Emery and Justin Steph have been all over him. And so I think that's a good sign he's willing to show up uh, for the spring game. Uh, but, you know, after June 1st, things get back to normal with recruiting. There's going to be camps, prospect camps, offers. Uh, so stay tuned here to thebigspur.com. It's going to be a busy summer, much different summer than last summer when we we're all just sitting around debating whether or not they should have a have a season. <laughs> I mean, you know, that 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 dialogue got old pretty quick. Uh, and so and it got really political, too. And so I, I'm, I'm looking forward to maybe talking about recruiting and all that and hopefully a deep baseball run. Um, you know, that the, the series this past weekend, it, it was something I talked about last week. I was like, well, you know, in football, things were okay, you know, because they had come back and beaten Vandy and come back and beaten Auburn. You're two and two. Things were looking okay. And then you go to LSU, and LSU was down just like they were in baseball heading in. They were down. You know, you can kick a Tiger-wise down, and then boom, the, the season imploded in, in, down in Baton Rouge. So then the next week – or sorry, the next season, you've you got, you got basketball. you got a long layoff, right? Uh, and then come back, you, you beat Texas A&M badly the, the first game of the conference season. Nobody remembers that in basketball. And then there's a pause, and then – Frank Martin has to not travel with the team because he has COVID. You're going down to LSU. Well, it's a good opportunity. Lead for three-fourths of the game, led by double digits in the first half, end up losing by five. And, and that was kind of the the beginning of the end, if you will. Because uh, had they won that game, who knows? Had Carolina football beaten LSU and Baton Rouge, who knows? Who knows? But uh, I'm sitting there watching – the uh, the first seven game or seven inning game on, on Saturday and listen to those LSU announcers, man. I, I know they got a lot of um, <clears throat> positive feedback from a lot of you Gamecocks out there. But uh, you know, so, so I'm sitting there watching. It's just like two nothing. And I'm like, man, this team's in, a, in another hitting slump. Uh, LSU's gonna go. I mean, they can sweep this series. And then you're sitting there at eight and seven in the league and you're kind of banished to that next tier and, and LSU's going its way back. And you know, I'm like, I, mean, I got all these thoughts about it. And then all of a sudden four, one four run rally in the top of the seventh, which, you know, and, and that's baseball folks, you know, uh, and, and that's, it's actually a good thing if your team does that, because that's such a stunner that, you know, the next game LSU just looked flat as a pancake. They, they still look stunned, and the Gamecocks won 9 nothing and won the series 2-1. to one. Um, and, and I know LSU's not as good as they once were, uh, especially this year. They're 4-11 and in the league. 
but it's still LSU baseball. And and I, I still think they're going to be a tournament team at the end of the day. I, I think they've got some good players, good young players. Uh, and I'm not a baseball expert. Uh, and obviously the SEC West is a bloodbath this year. But I, I do think that that's, that's good to go on the road and win the series. I mean, I think that's what you want to do. Do the Gamecocks have problems on Friday nights right now or Thursday nights, as it were? The Thomas Farr thing. Yeah, yeah Farr right now, he's not getting any run support. Uh, and he's walking too many guys. And, and that's it. I, I, don't, I don't know that it's necessarily a panic button kind of deal. Because um, he certainly played better in one games. It's just, I think just... One of those things, baseball is a streaky thing and you got to snap the streak and kind of uh, get back to it. So, you know, you, you look at it, Gamecocks now tied for second in the SEC East with Tennessee with a 10 and 5 record, 24 and 10 overall. There's no midweek game. Uh, and it's a Thursday, Saturday deal, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Thursday night at Founders Park, number one, Arkansas. The Hogs are number one uh, overall, uh, and they're in first place in the West. So you got three with Arkansas. You got Ole Miss for three, and then you got Mississippi State coming back for three. Uh, you got a game against the Citadel midweek after Arkansas, game against North Florida midweek after Ole Miss before Mississippi State, and then on May 11th, the return game against Clemson. Uh, after this nine-game gauntlet through the West at Kentucky. Kentucky's not bad. And then uh, in what could be, depending on how the teams play between now and then, could be a consequential series with uh, the Tennessee Volunteers coming to town May 20th through 22nd, right before the SEC tournament. That could end up being big or, or not so big, <laughs> depending on um, depending on how Tennessee and Carolina play. Tennessee, like I said, tied for second. They lost two or three to Vandy this past weekend. Uh, and so that's what's going on there. But 7 o'clock Thursday night, and boy, it'd be nice if all of a sudden the state of South Carolina said, you can increase capacity um, for your, your baseball. But then again, you know, Whittle was reporting the other day that the NCAA is kind of brushing back against, you know, miss the Mississippis of the world that have opened it up completely. Uh you know, they kind of brush back in terms of hosting. So maybe maybe the Gamecocks end up getting to host, you know, because may because they didn't expand. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think I think it's been sort of interesting with the crowds this year because of the heckling. Uh and I think the when you don't have a huge crowd, it makes the heckling louder and, and more noticeable. <laughs> and I think it almost is, you know, Carolina actually has had a pretty good uh, home field advantage. Cause I mean Let's face it. The bottom line is Missouri and Florida both. I think those have been the those have been the two home series. Missouri's players and Florida's players both were like a little hot under the collar <laughs> after those games at Founders Park. So whatever is happening and and, and uh, is working as far as the the heckling goes, because that's why you heckle because you want to get under the skin of the other player. Uh, and I think almost not having a full house has uh, has sort of allowed you know the other team to to actually hear word for word what's being said, and it's not been good. Um, and so, you know, if 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 you know if the restrictions are still in place, which I expect them to be, I haven't heard anything that that's going to change that. Um, 
hope the hecklers show up because it's had an effect. I guarantee you uh, it's had an effect. You could just tell the faces and the body language of the Florida player and Missouri players. I mean, and, and those have been the two home series. So hats off, you know, and like I said too, you know, don't be vulgar, all that good stuff. I, I made my spiel on that last week, but uh, it's working. Here's the bottom line. It's working. <laughs> and uh, so hopefully it works this weekend. Uh, against the Hogs coming to town. Gamecocks, uh, of course, Razorbacks ended Carolina's season, Kingston's first year in the Supers, two games to one. Uh, and then they had a heartbreak. I think who were they playing? Oregon State. They had a heartbreaking loss uh, in the College World Series finals. They they should be sitting on a national championship right now. Uh, and I was sitting there thinking about this the other day, too. You know, you kind of look at Arkansas athletics right now and, and the, the massive struggles they had in football uh, from Belima to Chad Morris. And then, you know, last year there, I think, I think COVID took them out of a bowl maybe because they were some, they were three and seven, but supposed to go to bowl. Maybe they didn't, um, but they showed some signs of life. I mean, they weren't overly great, but they were surprisingly good at times. Um and uh, then you look at men's basketball, they went to the Elite Eight this year, uh, and they have a rich tradition in that sport. And as they as well as baseball, and they're sitting at number one, you know, there's no reason why Carolina can't be up there. And, and then the good news for Carolina in the football is this. You don't have to play in the West. You've still got – I mean, if Arkansas got to play Missouri, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Vandy every year, I don't think they would have had the SEC's longest conference losing streak. I know they lost to those teams, uh, including Missouri, who they play every year at, at times. But I, I just think that the East still, when you look at how you're set up, you know, and that's important in college football, it's still a blessing to be in the SEC East, in my opinion. Uh, and, yes, Georgia's a beast, and, yes, Florida's back, and, you know, we keep saying Tennessee's going to be back, and, and they haven't been. Go look at their record since 08. Um, and, you know, Missouri could be a tough out sometimes, and Kentucky could be a tough out sometimes. But, you know, they're not set up as good as South Carolina for success. Uh, and so, anyway, that, that's my take there. Um, but there is hope. You know, I think a lot of Arkansas fans across the board in all sports were like, eh, a couple of years ago. Well, now all of a sudden baseball's number one. Men's basketball is in the Elite Eight. I'm not predicting that for Carolina's men's basketball team next year at all. Uh, I'm just saying things can turn pretty quick. Uh, and, and so I was thinking, I was like, man, they're number one. They went to the Elite Eight in basketball. You know, they're a bunch of happy hogs right now uh, out in Fayetteville. And, and that definitely wasn't the case a couple of years ago. And so we'll see uh, kind of what happens there. Uh, Gamecocks in recruiting – and this is pretty interesting in football, football recruiting offered another Delaware player. Uh, he is the teammate of Braden Davis at Middletown high school to Miwa Duro Jai to Miwa Duro Jai Tamiwa Duro Jai. Uh, 6'5", 250, strong side defensive end. You know, rated a three-star guy. 
Watch some little clips of him working out. He's got good feet. You can't really teach the size that he has. Pretty good on film. Upside guy. Uh, you know, this is a guy that, you know, all right, so T.J. Sanders was 6'5", 275. He's a little bigger coming out, and he's more of an inside player. You know, this guy is probably a little bit more like a uh, Aldrich Fordham type of guy. Um his ceiling may be bigger than that. I don't know. Um, but developmental defensive end. And I, and I think that if you look through the years, a lot of the players at Carolina at defensive end that have developed have developed quite well. Devin Taylor comes to mind. Melvin Ingram was a three-star that comes to mind. Um, you know, but even if not, even if you're like a, a, a snap eater, like a Byron Knight or a, Aldrich Fordham or Chaz Sutton, that type of guy. Of course, Sutton was a four-star guy, but was committed to Florida for a while, Urban Meyer. But, uh, you know, that, that that's the type of guy this guy is. And you can't, you know, you can't really – I mean, Kevin Dodd from Clemson would be another example here. He's not quite as raw as Kevin was coming out. But, you know, a, a good player, I think. And, uh, you know, so is this a package deal deal with Braden Day? I don't know. I don't know if it is or not, but uh, I think it can only help. Uh, and hopefully, you know, hopefully if you're Carolina, uh, this chess move pays off and you continue to own the state of Delaware in recruiting. <laughs> I got a nice uh, email from a listener about the first state uh, in the history of that state and all that the other day, and I appreciate it. But, um, you know, like I said, you look at the state's Delaware borders, you know, nobody's thinking twice about taking a kid out of eastern Pennsylvania, southeastern Pennsylvania, southern New Jersey, uh, Maryland. You know, nobody's thinking twice. Thinking you're not thinking twice about taking a kid out of there. So, you know, it's not like there's a wall around the state of Delaware, and it's not the same area. I mean, Wilmington basically is sort of near Philadelphia and all that. So, uh, and Middletown's a little ways down, but it's uh, you know, it, it seems to put out pretty good football players. So. We'll see what happens there. I think uh, I think it's really interesting, and I think um, you know you get these two guys back in, and you know Delaware is probably not going to put out more than one or two guys uh, for this level uh, a cycle. But at some point, they're going to have a player that's like really, really, really good. You know, Marshawn Lloyd came from Delaware. He just played uh, in another, you know, in DC. Drove. <laughs> to Damatha every day, um, and you'll have maybe have some kids like that too, uh, and, and that's a small enough football community there to where if you start getting a pipeline, you're going to be in it. I'm not saying you're going to get every kid because a lot of kids there grow up Penn State fans and Maryland recruits pretty well, but I'm, I'm, you'll be in it, I think, um, and I think that entire area, you know, you, you go from you know New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, DC right on down. Um, it could be a very lucrative place for South Carolina. And it, it they had the beginnings of it when Mangus was was there and Spurrier was there. The, the problem was a lot of the guys Mangus got from up there just had some bad luck. Sheldon Royster is an example of that. Um, you know, you did have Kiwan Lewis who started at linebacker for two years and then transferred out. And then you got, you know, Demir Bird, who's still in the NFL, was a Jersey kid. Um, you know, David Williams came from from Philly. Uh, 
wasn't great at Carolina, then went to Arkansas and kind of put it together and got drafted. Uh, you know, so there, there, there were some guys, you know, and then Tanner McAvoy after he left, uh, played a lot at Wisconsin, a lot. And, um, I think he played in that bowl game in the, in the Citrus Bowl against the Gamecocks. But so, you know, that's just kind of how it went uh, with, with those guys from up there. It wasn't it wasn't like it was bus city and, and these guys couldn't play. Uh, and so I think, you know, the chances are of, of all that happening to all those guys at once, uh, chances of that happening again, I think, are, is kind of slim now. You know, anytime you recruit a guy that's far further away from your campus than, you know, a, a four or five hour drive, you, you do run the risk of guys being homesick and things like that. Um, further away they are, usually the higher, the higher, you know, chance they transfer out. And now with the new transfer rules, obviously, that's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's very tempting. Um, so you got to kind of watch that. But man, I, I think, as far as the Delaware kids go in this cycle, you've got two guys here already that love the place. You know, there's kind of a support system there. And it's really not that bad of a drive. I mean, there's a lot of students in South Carolina from D.C., Northern Virginia, Maryland. Um, I know a lot of them. I knew a lot of them myself when I was there. And I know a lot of grads since then. So uh, that makes a lot of sense. So anyway, Tomiwa Durojaye. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, and he got an offer today. And you got to feel good about 6'5", 250 and athletic. I mean, I, I know it's not – he's not going to be – I mean, unless unless it's just a crazy good final year for him, I don't expect him to be a four-star at, at any point. But, you know, the skill set there – I mean, there's a lot of D linemen that just like blossom later. Uh, and I think he could be that guy. All right, so that's the recruiting. Oh, another thing. Watch out for this kid. I'm not putting him on commitment watch just yet, but but this kid uh, that uh, they offered in the secondary from Seminole County in Donaldsville, Georgia, uh, and he's got Alabama, Auburn, Florida State, Miami, everybody else now, Nick Cole. The Gamecocks are in pretty good shape for him. I don't know that they're going to get him, but I'm telling you to keep an eye on this guy. Just keep an eye on him. Um, 24-7 Sports gave him an initial rating of 88. <sighs> Who knows? You know, with Alabama offered and all those guys, he's probably going to go back up. Um, not sure why you just go with the 88 there, I guess, just being careful or whatever. But um, – this film's four-star good, and, uh, you know, just watch out for the Gamecocks. That's all I got to say on that. I'm not predicting anything. I just uh, keep an eye on this guy. All right. So that's that's finally the recruiting report right now. All right, it's time for the mailbag. Uh, there are two days – or two ways, two days. Blah. Two ways that you can get in on the mailbag. First of all, you can tweet to at the Big Spur Pod, or you can email inside the Gamecocks at gmail.com. Uh, some SEC recruiting news, real quick, just came across on the portal. Um, Joe Milton 
You remember him because uh, Kurt Roper actually was one of the first people to offer Joe Milton, and then he blew up and he went to Michigan. Things didn't work out. He's going to Tennessee. That further muddles their quarterback uh, deal. Uh, and then another piece of news here that just came across on Twitter. Uh, camps, Gamecock camps, the June 3rd, 4th, 5th, 11th, 13th, and 19th of the mini camps. Youth will be 14th through the 16th. And specialist on the 19th, O-line, D-line, and 7-on-7, 17th and 18th, and 24th and 25th. So month of June is going to be busy on the recruiting trail for the Gamecocks. Um, No other way to put it. Official visits, camps, all that stuff. Uh, And then we go 4th of July, and then SEC media days, and then it kicks back off again, folks. It's just right around the corner, which is always good. I'm always fired up uh, when that happens. So anyway, Ricky tweets at me, JC, love your work. Thank you. Thank you. And people like you make us, according to this one group here, feed spot, uh, the number one Gamecock podcast with this topic, South Carolina Gamecock. So I appreciate that. Um, Try to be as consistent as possible with it. Sometimes schedules don't work out. So I'll have you know, we had one episode a week for a little while there, but uh, I usually try to get in at least three. And to be honest, if um, if COVID, if my COVID shot, uh, second COVID shot had not gone south, and it did in a bad way Thursday and Friday, I would have had more last week. But uh, it was the second one. The first one, I didn't even have a sore arm. The second one is Moderna. Uh, they say 47% of the people get these side effects. I had a bad fever. I was basically bedridden for a couple of days. It's weird because you're sick without being sick. But then woke up Saturday and felt great. So feeling great now. And so we'll see. Uh, what are you looking for out of the spring game? Anything that will be telling as to this year's potential successes or failures? I, I don't know about that because, I, I, like I said, I've seen ugly spring games before. Heck, I've seen ugly openers. And then the team puts it all together in week two or three and ends up being really good. I mean – uh, a good example of that is, you know, you look at the 2007 Georgia Bulldogs and the 2007 South Carolina Gamecocks. You know, Carolina goes to Athens and beats them 16-12 to 12, second week of the season, and then Georgia did not lose again. And Carolina started 6-1 and one and then lost five straight to not even be in a bowl. Um, and so it's hard to tell. What I'm looking for is this. Who looks quick? Who looks like they can cover in the secondary? Who's going to catch some passes? is a big thing. Uh, and how do the quarterbacks look? Cause you could tell, you know, with this talk about throwing the ball and all that, you know, you can tell, I mean, I, if, if Doty struggles and like I said, the others look great, that, that doesn't necessarily mean the others need to be the guy, but you know, that that's just something I'm focused on. It's much more about uh, individual players and, things like that. And I'm looking forward to seeing, I mean, they're not going to show too much scheme wise. They're not going to get into their, you know, exotic plays and all that, but I'm looking forward to kind of seeing the basics of Marcus Satterfield's scheme. Um, and also the ba- basics of what Clayton White wants to do. You know, how, how is that going to look on that end? So, um, and I don't know, point to success or failure, you know, because look, you're not going to, these guys that are hurt, they're not going to play a lot. Your starters are probably not going to play a ton you know, the guys that have really nailed it down. They're going to be subbing. I mean, you're going to have second-team offensive linemen out there at times with third-team defensive linemen, walk-ons in the secondary. I mean, let's flip it around and say Luke Doty lights it up, but, 
you know, you, you look at kind of where the big plays were and they were all against walk-on defensive backs, obviously, you know, that's not something to sit there and, and, and engrave your name on a trophy about. So, you know, that's what I'm looking for, more individual stuff. And, and I love that part of it. I mean, that's kind of the, the basics of my career. Um, but, but it all, and I explained this too, I got in a discussion on the side over the weekend once I felt better about if I say something about a guy looking good in practice, that's in the scope of is he going to be – can he contend for a job at South Carolina? You know, can, can he be a starter at South Carolina? You know, and that – you know, he's looking good, so maybe he can help on special teams, that kind of thing. Um, it's not hyping a guy and saying – this guy's going to set the SEC on fire because that's what I would say if I thought that this guy's going to light the SEC up. And you, you, you probably never hear me say that a whole lot based on, you know, practice. Cause this is not a, you can't tell you're not out there playing Georgia or Missouri or Kentucky or Bama or whoever uh, in practice. It's just in the scope of who are the guys that can play at Carolina who's moving up the depth chart, who's ascending, that type of thing. And then we get to the season and we can tell everything else. And now you look at the collective of it and you're like, well, you look at who they got and who Carolina's got and you you can make a prediction. Um, You know, last year and and the predictions have sort of seemed off because, oh gosh, I guess two years ago, I thought they could go eight and four. And, um, but, you know, I, I I think that team with Jake Bentley should have beaten North Carolina. And I think if Jake Bentley had been there at Missouri, you know, where Helensky made some mistakes, uh, I think that could have been a different ball game too. Uh, so then you're at six, and then there's no way you should lose to App State, so you're at seven. Uh, and then, you know, find another, find another one. Florida maybe, you know, would they have beaten Georgia? I don't know. But, but that team could have gone eight and four. Uh, there's no question about it. Seven and five probably would have been more realistic. Uh, the previous year, I picked eleven and two. They weren't really that far off if you if you look at it. Um, as far as even though they finished seven and six, I mean that that Kentucky game, there are guys running wide open down the field. Jake just couldn't hit them, or they dropped the ball. You know, same with A and M. Carolina could have won that one had they been more consistent. So that would have brought it up to nine. Um, who else did they lose to? Uh, the, blow, the blown lead at Florida. So they're near at 10 then. And then who knows in a better bowl game if, if they'd have gone to the Peach Bowl or something. Uh, who knows if, if they wouldn't have had a little bit better performance. And maybe not the opt-out. So, you know, they're not off. You know, it, it's, it's tough to predict wins and losses, though. It, it is. And, uh, you know, you see predictions every year that, that don't, don't happen. Um, there are people – Last year, and Kentucky had a pretty good year, I thought, but there are people predicting them to win seven, eight games and challenge Georgia in the East. Um, this year's SEC East offseason darling is Missouri because they scraped together a five and five record last year and played pretty well, and they got people back. Um, Missouri was the, the offseason SEC East darling the year before, uh, and they, people were talking about them going undefeated until they played Georgia, and they finished six and six. and lost to Vanderbilt, and Barry Odom got fired. Uh, the Gamecocks in 2018 were that team, and they finished 7-6. and six. So, you know, there's all kinds of predictions and all that. I think 
you know, there's enough players on this team to where if the ball bounces their way and they stay healthy, you know, Carolina can get back to winning six or seven. And I think that's a great goal to have first year of a coaching staff, you know, play, be competitive. I mean, last year just ended up being, it wasn't so much the Gamecocks were losing, man. They just weren't competitive, especially on defense. I mean, you give up 52, 48, 59 right there in a row. Somehow they held Missouri to 17 and then 45 and 41. Just de- depleted, you know. I mean, after after struggling, you know, when they had all their players, they actually were a little bit statistically worse. But, I mean, you know, that, that, that's just the thing. I mean, you know, you, that's what you want to avoid because, you know, the more years you have like that over and over, the worse your situation becomes, the harder it is to recruit that type of thing, even with a new staff. So, you know, I, I think they can win enough to get to the ball. I mean, the, the schedule is not – I understand why it's ranked 10th hardest or whatever because of the way it ends and, you know, because of some of the confidence about some of these teams on the schedule. And I'm telling you this right now, Missouri and Kentucky are not going to be a joke this year. I'm not going to predict that Missouri challenges Georgia for the East – but I, I think both of those teams, you look at their personnel coming back and, you know, Kentucky's revamping its offense. I mean, it, you know, it could be, you know, they, they're going to be formidable. Luckily for the Gamecocks, Kentucky comes to town early in the year. Um, you know, but still still winnable. I mean, they're not far superior to the Gamecocks. Tennessee's lost a lot of players. You know, they're not far superior to the Gamecocks. You have to go to Knoxville. And we've all seen teams in Tennessee teams that probably, you know, weren't as good as Carolina win up there. And Carolina sitting on a two-game losing streak to those guys. But, you know, the schedule sets up pretty good. But, I mean, then you got to go to A&M, and you got Florida coming in, and then Clemson and uh, all those teams. Missouri's late. Auburn comes in the week before Clemson. I mean, so it gets tougher, obviously. Um, but – I think there's enough there talent-wise and enough there schedule-wise to get off to a good start. And the better start they get off for, to, the better equipped they are confidence-wise to handle uh, the gauntlet there at the end. So so that's my thing there. All right, inside the Gamecocks at gmail.com. And uh, Thomas, so Thomas said – Thomas sent me this email and it came in at while well, I, I was recording and then I'd recorded and I was putting it up. Um, so I told Thomas I'd start with this. Um, call, JC just caught up with the pods. I've heard from guys that would know Caslin and Frank don't get along. I can't I even believe it was Keith that called them two of them oil and water. I mean, I don't know about that. I mean, both guys pride themselves on discipline. I mean, you know, on the surface, I don't know enough about their relationship to know. I, I do know that, you know, Caslin wouldn't have, he's not what stood in the way of any sort of change. I, I know that, but uh, that's kind of all, um, all I know about that relationship. I mean, you know, I, I, I would hate to sit there and say, well, I don't get along. Um, and base it on just kind of rumors, you know. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I, I did think it, it did seem when Bob Caslin was in front of the General Assembly that uh, 
he was advocating for change. So I, I don't know, you know, so we'll see, we'll see kind of what happens there, but uh, I, I would hate to, to talk about a riff that I don't know for sure exists. Have heard from guys. Right, so that on Frank, if there was never going to be a cut bait immediately after the season, then why were so many, I believe you included reporting that a quick resolution on the situation was coming at the end of the season. Well, I didn't say there there never was going to be. I just said there wasn't, but that didn't really affect anything uh, because we were absolutely told there would be a quick resolution and they weren't going to wait around. So things changed. I don't think it affected anything as far as the, the outcome because I think whatever forces decided to, you know, throw their weight around were going to do that regardless. Um and, and even if it was a situation where, in hindsight, if they hadn't waited and just done it, then they'd have a new coach or whatever. Um, even if that was a situation, I, I still think they handled it the right way because I don't think you just, you know, toss a guy out on his ear that brought you to a Final Four. Um, yeah, if the Final Four was – seven, eight years ago, that's fine. And I know it's been a while and I'm not making excuses for the last few years, but, you know, second winningest coach in school history that has a winning record, SEC wins leader by a mile, NCAA tournament wins leader by a mile. Um, You know, (laughs) the guy has some accomplishments. Uh, And so I don't don't have a problem with the way it was handled. What I have a problem with was the, the political end of it. Um, and I think that, you know, you can only do so much as an athletics director or a school president when you have that kind of thing. On recruiting, part of Frank's admitted guiding principles of recruiting is not to throw out offers early. He wants to ensure kids fit him in his program. Obviously, I don't think he's all that great at evaluating, given how many kids get run off and exit the program. But do you think that's been an issue with recruiting transfers? He doesn't get any real time to evaluate and ensure the fit. He's talking out, tossing out offers in short order to targeted kids that he couldn't have contact with until they entered the portal, sometimes days earlier. I um, Look, I, I share the concern of getting transfers ready to play in Frank Martin's system. I definitely do that. I think the throwing out offers early thing – because in basketball, you, you throw out way more offers than guys you're going to take. You do it in football, too. I don't see the problem with throwing more offers out early, you know. And, and, and I, I, obviously, I don't know that that's going to make a difference just because, especially with in-state kids, uh, you know, I think there's some some struggles. I mean, and, and you know, even with out-of-state kids, you know, you look like, like last year, it looked like Earl Timberlake and Matt Cross – we're going to be part of the Gamecocks class. They both go to Miami. They've both since transferred. Did not come to Carolina. One went to Louisville. One went to Memphis. You know, so even with out-of-state kids that they get in on early, that they, they sometimes get caught um, from behind. And that's just recruiting. Um, but I share that concern with, with the, the portal guys. I think that's going to be the key to the whole season is, you know, and, and and the more people that like so Cousinard, Lawson, Bryant, if you get two of those, let's see you get Cousinard and Bryant back, that's going to help. Uh, so the more guys that come back, the better that helps kind of help everybody assimilate. What I will say 
is I think that with Stevenson and Wilson specifically, those are two guys that love defense and love to defend and take pride in it and all that. Um, and so to me, that's the type of guy mindset wise, that's going to be able to fit better or be more equipped to fit, but still there's just not, uh, um, there's just not the, uh, you know, the, the guarantee. Cause yeah, it's defense, but it's a different type of defense. <laughs> and so it's just, you know, I don't know, you know, so I share the, 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 uh, I share your concern there. I, I think as far as how Frank recruits, you know, if you look at kind of the, when he offered or whatever, I mean, so, so who would they have got? So John Morant, if they had offered earlier, probably would have been a guy they could have gotten. Um, the whole country missed on him. Frank at least came in and offered late. I don't know why the kid went to Murray instead of South Carolina, but that's just kind of what happened. The others, I don't, I don't know that late offers really had anything to do with it. Because, like I said, some of the guys that they've been in on that they've been been in good shape with, Timberlake and and Ross come to mind. You know, they end up getting called anyway by, like, a team like Miami that, you know, just kind of say, hey, come to South Beach, and they're going to fall in love with it. So that's just kind of how it is. I I, I think what, what, you know, Frank probably could use is, you know, earlier offers, you know, try to get to the bottom of the AAU situation, which I don't, I don't see that happening with any coach anytime soon uh, in state, um, but continue to go evaluate. And, and, and here's the thing too, to keep in mind with this, Thomas is we, we kind of, I mean, like I said, I share your concern with the transfers, but we kind of just, we're kind of in a new era of college basketball because I've looked around, you know, Rick Barnes lost seven guys and brought in five from the portal. Uh, I don't know Florida's exact number, but it was significant. Arkansas is getting tra- – I mean, it's 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 a lot different, you know, because you're almost – if you were smart uh, or not smart, I don't know if it's smart or not because I don't know much about it, but you almost think some of these guys that go – try to find late bloomers of the high school level, like a, like a Cousinard was a couple of years ago or whatever, maybe in good shape because, you know, there's so much portal activity uh, or maybe it's just that, you know, everybody wants older players and, and you go and dip because it's not just South Carolina dipping down to mid majors and getting guys. I mean, actually, you know, I mean, so South Carolina's transfers are George Mason George Mason was Wilson. Stevenson was university of Washington uh, Chico Carter was obviously Murray State, and then you got Reese from North Texas. Um, they're not the only schools dipping down for mid-major guys. There's a lot uh, of players that are going up, going down, um, and so I, I think we'll just have to wait and see how this works because it, it is a new era in college basketball. The the portal, the the instant eligibility, the one-time transfer rule. Uh, I think it's going to help keep people from transferring twice, which in basketball has happened a lot. <laughs> but I, I think you're going to see a lot of situations where guys are at the, the mid-major level and then for their last year or whatever, uh, they're going to come back. Plus, they get the COVID year now. So you've got 
you've just got a lot of things going on right now to where we don't, we don't really know, you know, because it's just kind of difficult to sit there and go, well, you know, <laughs> uh, what do you do? And there's not that much time to determine fit, quite frankly. Uh, and also, here's another thing to think about. You know, you got Gortman and, and the younger underclassmen guys coming up in the state of South Carolina. And what I would do if I were Frank is, and his staff is, I would just make sure, put no pressure on those kids, but make sure you have a great relationship with them because you never know what's going to happen. They may go someplace else, not be happy. You get the one-time transfer rule. You can benefit from that and bring them home. Um, and, you know, before you go all seventh woods on me here, I, I know that didn't work out well, but then, you know, th- there's other situations that obviously have. Devin Downey, Zam Frederick, and uh, Larry Davis all come to mind. Uh, so South Carolina's actually did, but been okay. Uh, getting guys from the state when they come back to be successful. Uh, and Thomas adds, I appreciate you moving me from 95 to 98% wrong in back-to-back pods inside the Gamecocks podcast. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to throw you back down to 94. How about that? You're 94% wrong, Thomas. Uh, but that was a good email, and I appreciate it. Thomas comes back again with more Frank. JC, you ask, who are you going to believe about a suspension of a player, Frank or John Curry? I'm probably not going with the guy who's recruited dudes that grouped up and went on a BB gun shooting spree, guys who fight police, get arrested, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, this is – I'm probably going to move you back to 96 now because, you know, I I know that there's been some guys with discipline problems, but they've all gotten kicked off the team. Um I, I don't, you know, as far as the suspension goes at Kansas State, I don't think it was any of these situations. Um, and and I'm, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll take Frank's side over John Curry with that any day of the week, and I'll take Frank over John Curry just about just about anything. And I, I think that guy, I mean, you guys that, that want to sit here and because you're – and I understand if you're mad at Frank and want him to go and think Carolina can do better. I, I get that. There's no question. But – you guys want to sit there and attack him and his character and side with somebody like John Curry. Could you, if John Curry was the AD at South Carolina and conducted a football coaching search like John Curry did, he would be public enemy number one. As bad as you guys badmouth Ray and get mad at Ray and all that. Imagine if you'd have had that situation. I mean, you know, give me a break. John Curry, come on, man. You know, uh, I just – I'm not going to do it. Um, I'm on Frank's side with that. Now, all these other things you said with the guys getting in trouble or whatever, yeah, you, you don't ever want that in your program. Uh, in South Carolina, I, I think it's tough to say they've suffered for it because after the BB gun year, you know, six players get kicked off or leave or whatever, they go to the Final Four the next year. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I think that to that, that group – probably the next year ended up being better off um, without those guys. You know, I, I think maybe the, the team element was in place there w- without some of those guys. But anyway, um, but yeah, I'm not going to – no matter what, and, and you're you're right in saying that some of this stuff has happened to Frank's players, but I don't think that has anything to do with the rift that – he and, and Curry had, and nor the fact that, you know, Curry's a, not a competent AD. I mean, I, I just don't, 
I don't think he's, I think he's shown <laughs> uh, even down to firing Danny Manning in the middle of a pandemic at Wake Forest, that, that he's just not, not very good. That's my opinion. Ty says, Satterfield has a play caller, Ty Cock. From Spartanburg, it seems there is good confidence in Satterfield as an OC, especially in scheming the X's and O's, but play calling is certainly a critical part of a successful offensive coordinator. How much confidence do you have that he could be productive in calling plays against the SEC defensive coordinators and why? Uh, I think it's to be determined. Um, again, watched his temples off, temple offenses. Statistically, they didn't light it up. Uh, I didn't, you know, okay, so with Kurt Roper, and we'll go back to him because he's the perfect example of a guy that on the chalkboard you go, wow, that's great. And then in practice, he's, you know, dialing them up and lighting it up. And then he gets in the game and he never calls the stuff they work on. And it's very vanilla and just does not have, he did not have a good rhythm to it. You know, he almost got, what I was told, got kind of flustered up there in the booth trying to dial it in the heat of the battle. And you can't have that. You need a confident, calm guy. Um, and, and and so that that's what you want to guard against. Now, what I saw with Satterfield at Temple was not anything like the frustration with Kurt Roper where you're literally running the ball up the middle, up the middle, up the middle. I mean, it's just no creativity in the run game, um, that type of thing, slow moving when you should have been tempo. Uh, I thought Satterfield's play calls were pretty creative and good against some of the defenses they did when they executed. That said, you just don't know. Uh, you, you just don't know. Brian McClendon was a really good play caller until teams adjusted against him. And then he wasn't. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you kind of think about some of the the actual calls that he made, and they're pretty good until teams adjusted, then they weren't. And, and that's why things happened like they did. And then you – you throw him a freshman quarterback uh, and things get really bad. And he had problems with creativity in the run game as well. Mike Bobo was a better play caller than both of them, obviously, because he was actually dealing with – like you think about the talent Kurt Roper had in 2017, NFL players at running back, receiver, tight end. Uh, I still think Jake Bentley will play in the NFL after this year. So a quarterback, he had a good quarterback. Uh, and that team sometimes struggled to score 20 points. You know, whereas Bobo this year, and, and I know the defenses across the board in the SEC were not great, uh, but when Colin Hill was playing okay and they were able to run it, you know, 27, 24, you know, they put up, which was better than I expected, to be honest. Uh, put up 30 against Auburn. Now part of that was on a pick six and all that, but, you know, 41 at Vandy, and then things just went south. Um and, and so I, I thought that play calling wise was was a pretty good year because I think that everybody in the stadium knows you have one receiver in Shy Smith because you know it's been broadcast everywhere, and you know they know you're going to throw it to the tight end. I mean that, that's pretty easy to stop. So you have to have some kind of you know scheme there to get those guys open. I mean that's play calling, and the fact that Shy Smith continued to be productive I thought was good. Now, not saying there was a great offense, but. Play calling was not the problem last season. Um, play calling was a problem in 2017, and I think play calling and the lack of adjustments were a problem in 2019. So, so you don't know. And, 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 you know, South Carolina goes out and, 
goes up and down the field Saturday and uh, against their defense and, and looks good. And then they go out and go up and down the field against Eastern Illinois and East Carolina to open the season. That's, that still doesn't necessarily mean anything um, in terms of when you get in those SEC battles, that chess match, you know, what's it going to look like? And uh, and it's hard, you know, to tell because obviously the um, the idea is if you score seven points, the play calling sucked. If you score fifty, it was great, <laughs> and, and that's just not always the case because sometimes you just overwhelm everybody. So I, my my answer is I don't know. I think he's going to be good. I think he's got a lot of confidence. Uh, I like the ideas and the scheme. All the coaches that work with him think the world of him, but I also. I also know there are guys out there that in meetings and on the field and in practice are very, very good. And you get in the football game and some kind of disconnect. Now, as I've said before, I didn't see any of that out of his teams at Temple that I went and watched. I didn't see any of that uh, back when he was at Tennessee Tech or, or UT or wherever. Chattanooga is the OC. I mean, he's kind of an attack, attack, attack guy. Um and I think what they're trying to do this year uh, schematically and concept-wise is going to be, you know, it's pretty good. It's, it's kind of, you know, new and cutting edge and sort of where football is trending right now. But, you know, you, you just you, you just don't know. And I would hate to sit here and, you know, say this guy's the next head ball coach, Steve Spurrier, or Lincoln Riley or whoever, name your good play caller, and, and he ends up not being. Uh, and it's just simply because I don't know. I think, but I don't know. And uh, and, and that's that. So, I, I you know, I think he's going to be fine, probably pretty good. But but without seeing it, I just don't know. I've been, you know, I, I, we talk on the website sometimes about Muschamps and uh, post-traumatic syndrome. Um, and so maybe that's me because – I've listened to the talk, the chalk talk and, and all that and gone, yeah, that's, it's pretty good just in my mind. Uh, and then been disappointed. Like with, with McClendon, uh, I didn't even think about the fact, you know, and, and I should have, because I will from now on that, that uh, what happens when the other team makes adjustments. I don't think anybody else did either <laughs> um, because that's where he really struggled. You know, at the beginnings of games and scripted series and stuff like that, right down the field. And so, uh, so we'll see what happens there uh, with Marcus Satterfield. I do know this. I know he's a smart guy and a confident guy, uh, and I understand why Shane Bieber hired him. So that's it. Mr. White says, hey, JC, in Sesame Street, there was a little exercise called one of these things is not like the other, where they tried to get kids to differentiate which of the four items being presented was the least like the other. I'd like to know in your opinion, which of the football assistant coaches is the least like the other assistants and why, how does he fit into the group and what does he bring to the table that other assistants don't? Well, let me think about it first. I'd, I'd probably say Eric Kimry would be the one that's not like the other just because he's never coached in college before. Uh, high school career coach there. Um, you know, everybody else has been at the collegiate level or the NFL or, or wherever you want to talk about it. But uh, how does he fit into the group? Great. Uh, Kimry's very like-minded. 
in terms of like psychologically what needs to happen with this program. Uh, and, and, and probably one of the best assistants that personally knows that uh, the, the transformation mentally that needs to have ha- that needs to happen. Um, I think that based on the returns of, of his recruiting so far, I think he's got a chance to be great at it. Uh, it always helps when you get the first two or three in the, in the boat, right? But uh, I, I think so far, based on what I've heard from prospects and their parents, he's well-liked. Um, I think he's got a lot of talent at the tight end position this year that he, he's going to develop, and they're probably going to play pretty well. I think he's still a good offensive mind. But if you're the least like the other, then you know obviously that's, that's Kimmy because the other nine – have extensive collegiate coaching experience. So, um, you know, if you want to go geography, like where they're from, um, it'd be Pete Limbo, the special teams coach, because, you know, Limbo's from New York. Uh, Atkins is from West Virginia. Hardesty's from North Carolina. Camry's from South Carolina. Step is from South Carolina. Uh, you have Jimmy Lindsay's from North Carolina. Peterson's from Florida. Uh, you got uh, Clayton White's from North Carolina. And Torian Grace from Florida via Virginia and all that. And Shane Beamer's from Virginia, although born in South Carolina. Um, so if, you, if you're just looking for, like, where guys are from, you got a bunch of guys from the mid-Atlantic and the south, up and down the south, and then Limbo's from New York. So – uh, that would be, I guess, if, if you're just looking at kind of like background and stuff like that, Pete Limbo's different. Special teams coaches are different too. So that would be that. Good game to play there, Justin. I appreciate it. So really good mailbag today, guys. Again, inside the Gamecocks at gmail.com, or you can tweet at me at the Big Spur Pod. Please follow that Twitter account at the Big Spur Pod. Also follow us on Instagram, inside the Gamecocks. And uh, we'll be back soon with more. This is JC Sherbert. Signing off, everybody. Have a wonderful Monday. Holla soon.